The Golden Gospel Singers orchestrate the Negro spiritual O Freedom, whose lyrics proclaim, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. The fact that the spiritual O Freedom still resonates with millions of Americans demonstrate that the struggle for freedom, justice, and equal rights still exists for millions of African-Americans. We hear at Solutions of Violence, as well as our guest today, Louisville Metro Councilwoman Jessica Green, want to shine a light on that struggle. Hello, friends. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMPLP 106.5 FM. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson, and we are your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Our program sponsored by Forward Radio, an affiliate of Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of the WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. We want to hear your views on this program. So contact us by email at solutionstoviolence18 at gmail.com. Our guest today is Metro Councilwoman Jessica Green. Jessica Green began serving as District 1 Councilwoman January 1st, 2015. She is a lifelong resident of the district. In 2020, she serves as chair of Metro Council's Public Safety Committee and is a member of the Community Affairs Health and Education Committee. During her tenure on the Metro Council, Councilwoman has made public safety one of her top priorities. Jessica Green graduated from Central High School in 1999 as valedictorian. She graduated from Spelman College in 2003 and both freshman and senior class president and was both freshman and senior class president. She graduated from the University of Kentucky's College of Law 2008 and was a faculty cup recipient. Today she is a practicing attorney and is a former assistant commonwealth attorney in Jefferson and Hardin counties. Among her professional accomplishments is in the field of law, she is past vice president of the Louisville Black Lawyers Association former recipient in the Louisville Bar Association Leadership Academy, and a former member of the Louisville Bar Association's Community Service Committee. She was honored as a recipient of the, quote, top 40, under 40, end quote, award of National Trial Lawyers. Councilman Jessica Green, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. We're glad you're here. Councilwoman, uh, you have a law practice in Louisville, and you describe your firm as devoted to representing the underdogs, to fighting hard and, and, and winning big. When you say represent the underdogs, what, what do you mean, and how do you represent them? So the bulk of my practice is in family law, and I also practice in criminal defense. And so typically when my clients are coming to me, um, they are in a disadvantaged position. And so typically people are not filing cases and wanting to take case custody battles to, to court if they are in the superior position. And so I represent a lot of dads who have been cut off from having visitation rights with their kids. I've been practicing law at this point almost 15 years. And so my early career was as a prosecutor. And so as a prosecutor, I was assigned to the domestic violence unit where I specifically prosecuted domestic violence cases and child sex offense cases. And so I was representing the interest of children who had been sexually assaulted, uh, felony level offenses, and also primarily women who were victims of se severe domestic violence. And so that's kind of what, what my career has been entirely devoted to. And then, of course, you became a councilwoman for Louisville uh, City. 
So uh, your district is uh, one that covers Lake Dreamland, Cane Run Road, Campground Road, Bells Lane, south to Lower Hunter's Trace and uh, southwest Louisville. Those are all working class neighborhoods, right? And they are, mostly, and then also portions of West Louisville as well, too. Uh-huh. But that, that white population has a lot of, in common with uh, mostly black and African-American neighborhoods in, in the Louisville's West End. Yeah. That's Chickasaw and Sha- Shawnee Park, uh, yes. California, Park Duval, Beecher Terrace. What common threads do you see that explain the, why many of these neighborhoods live below the poverty line? Yeah, so that's a very interesting point. So even though portions of my district are in West Louisville and portions are in South to Southwest Louisville, there's a lot of of common ground. And so not only are there a lot of working class population in each of these areas, there's also severe poverty. And so we deal with, in both parts of the district, issues related to food insecurity, issues uh, related to lack of education, lack of resources. Of course, the the drug crisis is a problem in all parts of of the the district. So while we have a lot of wonderful things going on in District 1, there are a lot of significant challenges that we have. And so I've been known to say that some of my colleagues, they have the luxury of just focusing on legislation. I was on a call earlier today, actually, with a minister out in the southwest portion of the district where we were talking about trying to come up with 100 turkeys to try to feed families coming up for Christmas. And so those are the kind of things that we have to deal with. In addition to writing legislation and policy, very real issues uh, that my office deals with, such as trying to help people keep their lights on, keeping them fed. And so I love it. And it's one that I have enjoyed serving since 2015. So that's uh, on the ground, day to day. Kinds of Every day. Yeah. yeah. So Councilwoman Jessica Green, the Food and Drug Administration does not consider Lake Dreamland a food desert. And a food desert is defined as a low-income census tract where a substantial number of share uh, or share of residents has low access to supermarkets or large grocery stores, meaning there are no grocery stores in the region that sells fresh produce. However, the Source of Justice people explained that Lake Dreamland, one of the neighborhoods in your district, is close to being a food desert. Tropicus Denutrition and Cancer, a summary of the evidence, Cancer Causes Control, 1996, explain early deaths are two or three times as likely in neighborhoods labeled food deserts because they lack groceries that sell fresh produce. Diet has been estimated to be responsible for between one quarter and one third of all the cancers that occur in economically undeveloped countries. There are many studies that documented a correlation between diminished intellectual development, poor school performance, and malnutrition. One of the more promising studies, quote, the impact of malnutrition on brain development, intelligence, and schoolwork performance, end quote, confirms a correlation between malnutrition, brain development, low scores on intellectual tests, and poor scholastic performance, end quote. So lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables and good nutrition creates a difficult situation, as explained by Wallet, CW, Lavia, Plaza, Inzazuna, Burrito, Perez, Torrejon, Castro Glor, Jasmine, Medina, uh, Tora Diaz, Amiga, Flores, Nerera Diaz, Carita Caceres, Sabrilla, Alderbert Maria, Ivanovich, Manikovich. In their article, The Impact of Malnutrition on Brain Development, Intelligence, and School Performance, published 
in the ARC Latinium Neutral Review 2001. So we know the city has a plan for addressing food deserts and the lack of access to fresh produce in poor communities. But there is still work to do. With all the other issues the city now faces with metro government, is nutrition still a priority here? Nutrition is definitely a priority. And so one of the things that was in the last budget was money to be able to address, and again, in the the West Louisville part of the district, to be able to support grocery stores. And although that people would say that Lake Dreamland is not a, a food desert, in that part of the district, there's not a plentiful abundance of grocery stores out there in that part of the district. We've got pretty much the Walmart on Cane Run Road that's probably a about, um, the only grocery store that's out there, but it, it, it can be challenging for people in the Lake Dreamland and Lee's Lane area to get there and to be able to get back home. Because again, we're dealing with poverty out in that part of the district. Many people don't even have yeah. a vehicle. And so the idea that somebody would have to walk from Lake Dreamland and Lee's Lane to Walmart on Cane Run Road in Lake Dreamland. And so, as I said, the idea that we've got people who are lining up by the hundreds to be able to have to get turkeys and to be able to get other resources that people are hand- handing out shows that there is a true divide. And I think that sometimes people really forget that Louisville is a tale of essentially a tale of two cities. You know, you're either doing extremely well or you're very impoverished. And I think that if you are not part of the impoverished part of society in our Louisville, in our city, you it may be hard for you to believe that people have difficulty getting to a, a grocery store. My sister lives out on Brownsboro Road and there are about three or four Kroger's within a two mile radius of her house. Now, me living in West Louisville, really, it's easier for me to sometimes go across the bridge to Indiana to access things than it is for me to be able to access those same things from my house. That is a true inequity. And that is something that has got to be fixed. And so until we can truly focus on equalizing the playing field and equity for all, this community, this city, this country will never be what it should be. What it claims to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in addition to the good nutrition uh, priority, uh, what would you say are other critical issues faced in the, the folks in, in District 1? I think one of the the biggest issues is affordable housing as well. And I was happy that yesterday we were able to to pass a housing, fair housing ordinance here. The mayor signed that yesterday. And so the reality of the situation is that I believe that appropriate and fair housing is a basic human right in the same way that water, food, access to clean air, access to housing is a human right. And what we know, particularly um, since this COVID-19 pandemic, as we've seen eviction numbers be on the rise, we've known always that there's been an issue with, with housing. And so there are people who are, are struggling. What we find sometimes is that not always, but sometimes there are landlords that are, that are not great. And when people are are poor, there are times when they don't repair the housing. There are slumlords that in West Louisville and Southwest Louisville have properties that are crappy and that they continue to allow them to stay crappy because they know that people don't have any other options and they've got to stay there. And that is a real 
Very, very, very real issue. One of the other issues we're dealing with is from West to Southwest in District 1, the opioid crisis. And so drugs and opioids are ravaging our community. Um, as part of my daytime job as, as an attorney, I do a lot of work on the dependency, neglect, and abuse docket. And in layman's terms, that's the CPS docket. The vast majority of families that we see coming on that docket are being torn apart because of drugs. And in my conversation with a pastor earlier, right before this, this call with you guys, he talked to me about how he had just buried a 22-year-old who died of an overdose yesterday. That funeral was yesterday. And the mother said to him, sadly, I'm actually, I'm happy that my son went out this way as opposed to by gun violence. And again, what a hard choice and what, what a, what a statement for a mother to make. So what we know is that drugs are a crisis, but gun violence is a significant problem. And again, from West to Southwest. And so I have lived in West Louisville uh, my entire life. Arguably, I probably live in one of the most beautiful neighborhoods in West Louisville. I live in Park Duval, which is the former Cotter Homes neighborhood that was revitalized and and new homes were, were built. But even two or three years ago, there was a double homicide literally right around the corner from my house. I live in a neighborhood where a 13 year old girl was in her home reading a book and gunshots ring out inside of her home. And again, I'm raising my kids in this family. I'm in West Louisville, not because I have to be, but because I I want to be, but there are challenges that are here. And again, it really takes us to laser sharp and to focus on particular neighborhoods that have specific needs because there are needs in district one that have got to be addressed. Now, these are these are all kinds of violence that we, you know, we want people to recognize from housing to drug to to shooting that there are different levels, but they are violence. And uh, those are the things we want to we want to look at those two in terms of solutions and, and ways that, that you think uh, they can be resolved and are being resolved in, in other ways. So in terms of gun violence and in terms of the drug issue, I've said it before and I don't have a problem with, with saying it publicly. I do not believe that anybody ever wakes up and says, oh, my life's goal is to be a a criminal because every, what you would characterize as a bad guy was once a child before. A child who had hopes and dreams and aspirations who didn't come out of the womb expecting to be a menace to society, perhaps expecting to go to, to the penitentiary. And so one of the things that we have got to do is to stop just being reactive. What I know is that incarceration alone is not going to to fix this issue. And I know that because, again, I was a prosecutor for almost a decade. Part of my practice is is, is a criminal defense attorney now. Incarceration is just not going to, to, to fix it. But we have to look at cradle to grave resources. And so resources from the time that a kid is is born. You know, you cannot say that you're pro-life if you're not interested in giving kids and people an advantage from the time that they are are born. And so things like kindergarten readiness, that plays a role in it. Things like access to food, that plays a role in it. Things like affordable housing, that plays a, a role in it. Focusing on our at-risk teen populations, that plays a role in it. Obviously, resources to law enforcement plays a role in it. But again, law enforcement 
is overtaxed and overburdened. They cannot do it all by themselves. A significant part of what we are dealing with when we're looking at the violence epidemic are unresolved and untreated mental health issues. So focusing resources into mental health is part of the equation. With that being said, also focusing on the violent offenders is, is part of it. There's a new program in the city that I'm working with. And what that program is, is all about is targeting some of the worst offenders in the city. And again, not working to necessarily terrorize them when, they're, when they are released, but working to try to give them resources, to give them housing, to try to link them up with good jobs. Recidivism is at an all-time high. And again, we can't arrest, as I said, we cannot arrest ourselves out of this time, out of this process. We have got to be pro- proactive about it. So investments in the communities uh, that need it, need it most. And again, I think part of that is a living wage. The Metro Council several years ago passed a, a law raising the minimum wage in Louisville Metro that was subsequently struck down at the state level. I'm spending energy now trying to get our state legislators to raise the minimum wage. People can't live off of seven something dollars an hour. People want to be able to take care of, 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 of their families. And so, you know, unfortunately, even though there's not an official caste system in this country, it seems as if we spend time just trying to keep people down and basically saying that poor people should stay poor. We've got to have an affordable living wage here. And so those are a few of the things that we, we can do. And obviously, including, as I said, to invest in law enforcement, I do believe that that is part of it. And so a lot of work to be done, a lot of uh, good things that we, we could target. And again, uh, it's, it's overwhelming when you think about it, especially when you think about the large number of homicides in 2020 alone. I mean, that number is absolutely devastating. 140. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So Councilwoman Green, you mentioned this, the responsibility of Louisville Police Department. So we know the LMPD no not warrant drug raid that took the life of Brianna Taylor. The LMPD is now, that's a, now a hot button issue. And you voted against the renewal of the federal order uh, police contract, the FOP contract. Why? I voted against it not because I don't support um, the police department. I have been one of the probably the the best friends the law enforcement has had down through the years on on the council. I voted against it because in this day and age in 2020, the game really has changed. And so people are calling for more transparency and not less transparency. People are calling for more accountability and not less accountability. And so I believe that that contract missed the mark in, in a couple of ways. The idea that uh, discipline related to to officers. It's something that just had had needed to 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 be addressed. And unfortunately, you know, 2020 uh, has been an interesting year for for all of us. But you know, as many uh, politicians, you you're, you're characterized now as pro law enforcement or anti law enforcement. And I, and I think that that sometimes misses the mark. I don't think that we have to be such a, a combative in such a com- combative role. But I think that the community wants to have transparency. And I think that things like that officers should not have to testify essentially immediately about what happened. And they have several days before they have to even sit down with somebody to t- after a critical incident has, has occurred. That is, that is problematic to me. And I think that uh, for protection of the private citizen and also protection of, of the officers, that again, transparency really should be the name of the game. Okay. 
Ms. Green, the justice for Brianna movement has brought a lot of pressure to the fundamentally change of the structure of LMPD. The Metro Council passed an ordinance that disallows the LMPD to execute no-knock warrants. You voted for, and the council passed that reestablishment of the Global Metro Police Citizens Review Board. First, tell us why you supported that reestablishment of the board, and tell us why you support the uh, Metro Police Citizens Review Board today. Oh, yeah, I wholeheartedly support it. And, and if anybody's listening, uh, the, the deadline to be able to submit applications for that is actually today at the close of 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 business days. And so I, I support that because I don't really think that the police department's discipline of itself is necessarily appropriate. And I think that to increase community trust, there really should be a, a process by which private civilians should have the opportunity to look at, to be able to investigate, to be able to to know what's going on. And so a passage of that ordinance also included the establishment of an officer of inspector general's office. That inspector general will have full, will be a full investigative branch and have a staff to be able to conduct investigations. It just does not go over well when we're talking about building community trust and goodwill to think that only there will only be internal investigations. And also part of it is that we've seen that some of these investigations have taken months, even years to conclude when there are public integrity investigations. And so I think that having an independent body to look at that, I, I think that, and to be able to determine determine whether or not it should be appropriate for an officer to stay, to stay there. I think that's something that that's a good thing. And that was overwhelmingly supported by most of my colleagues on the, the council. And so that will be an 11 member board. Three names will be, be selected from the names that were sent over by Metro council. We will, we will, we will send over six names to the mayor's office. The mayor's office will ultimately select three of the six names that we have sent over. There will also be four names that are sent over by civic organizations like GLI, NAACP, Louisville Urban League, and then three three names that are just picked by the mayor um, himself. And so I think that this is a, a great step forward. And I think that giving this board a little bit of power and bite is something that I think that would be very beneficial. So Councilwoman Green, how important, how critical is the subpoena power for the Citizens Review Board? And that's up to the state legislature, right? Yeah, obviously we, we, we have asked the state legislature to give this board subpoena power. I think that it is very, very important because otherwise what you have is, is a dog that cannot bite. And so, you know, the idea that you've got a dog that, that has basically is, is a neutered kind of uh, dog is something that I don't <laughs> think it is, is, is very, very uh, beneficial. So um, I think that the subpoena power is critical to this board being able to get a full investigation and being able to have a full idea and a full view of what it has actually occurred because otherwise I think they will just kind of be spinning in circles. And so we want to make sure that um, they have subpoena power. So besides a, a subpoena power, what other authority will the board have? The board will have investigative authority with the with the OIG's office. And so they will have the ability to investigate, to subpoena, 
uh, to issue recommendations in terms of, of discipline to the department. And so again, I think that this is, they will have the ability to be able to publish and release information to the community. And again, this idea that that information should not be released to the community or that it should be should move at, at a snail's pace. It's very, very frustrating to most citizens. And uh, I'm hoping that this will be a good thing. The creation of this board had broad bipartisan support. So again, this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. This is not a Black-White issue. This is not a pro-police, anti-police issue. It just makes sense for such a time as this. And so I'm, I'm really excited about what the future holds. Uh, I've been excited about some of the um, more progressive legislation that we've been able to pass in 2020. And I said yesterday that, you know, I think in 2020 government, the city officials, Metro Council and the mayor were trying to get it right and trying to, to, to use government in the way that is most beneficial for the people. Yeah, just to uh, advise or remind folks, today uh, we are recording Councilwoman uh, Jessica Green, and today's date is December 10th, 2020, because we've mentioned some dates earlier. We want people to realize where we are. Uh, Councilwoman Green, you've been on the panel that has responsibility for interviewing the candidates for Louisville's mm -hmm. new chief of police. Related to your work with, with this panel, you sponsored a bill on the in Metro Council, and it was passed. What What is in this bill and what what do you think it will mean to the citizens of Louisville? And when you say what bill in particular are you talking about? A bill okay, related well, to the police search. I, I didn't respond sponsor anything in relation to the to the police search, but I will say that I have it was a very um, thoughtful and deliberate process that those of us who conducted that search, uh, there were about eight of us on the panel. It took several months. We conducted uh, dozens and dozens of interviews. Uh, we initially had 26 candidates and that number was whittled, whittled down and recommendations were made to the mayor's office. And so I'm anticipating that there's going to be an announcement, hopefully before the end of the year, in terms of who the mayor has ultimately selected as uh, his new chief of police. We had some really good candidates that I think that would come to Louisville uh, with some, some good ideas. And so it's an exciting time. And so I'm hoping that, again, that that announcement may be made by the end of the year. End of the year. And this is December 2020. So that's coming up. Right. I, I Listen, I hope so. So I've, I've been waiting, too, to see what the mayor has decided to do. And I'm hopeful that that will occur before the end of the year, because I think it will be uh, beneficial going into the top of 2021 for everybody to have an idea, the police department and the citizens to have an idea to, as to who's going to actually be lead, leading the department. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that. So Jessica Green, there was an article published in the Little Courier Journal, November 29th, 2020. It was entitled quote, searches target West End, end quote, explains that in the past two years, courts approved at least 27 no-knock warrants, allowing police to legally break into homes without first knocking and announcing their presence. 22 of those warrants were served against Black suspects, about 82%. From the no-knock warrant, 68% were for resides in Louisville's West End. In 2019, LMPD conducted more than 3,000 court-ordered searches, an examination of 356 LMPD search warrants without a no-knock provision shows that seven of the 10 most frequently searched zip codes were in Louisville's West End. So Councilwoman Green, do you believe there is racism within the LMPD? Why? 
I, I think that yes, short answer to it. And what we know previously is that officers were told by former Chief Conrad essentially to to pull people over in the West End just basically for no real reason. There's still the outstanding case of the young man in my district, Tayon Lee, who was pulled over in front of a, a Thornton's and detained basically for a, a, a bogus reason. And so this is something that I have known and probably residents of West Louisville have known for a long while. You know, I've, I've got kids and it's so interesting when I speak to my kids, friends, some of their white friends, and I have told them, particularly with my black sons, my teenage sons about what I say and how I have told told them how they have to interact with police officers and be polite, keep your hands on the wheels, just stare straight ahead. And I've had some of my kids' white friends say, we don't have to have these same conversations with our kids because we don't think about the same things that you as a black parent think about with a kid who may be driving out in West Louisville, particularly um, a black male. And so again, it's not a surprise to me I've lived in West Louisville my whole life. I've been black <laughs> my whole life. And so for me, none of this is a, a shocker or really was um, a big reveal. I think putting the numbers on paper may have shocked some people, but hopefully it helps you to, to understand why um, there is a perceived trust amongst some African-Americans towards law enforcement about why there is a perceived distrust amongst some people who live in the urban core towards law enforcement. Numbers don't lie. Experiences don't lie either. And I think that those numbers help to validate a lot of the experiences of a lot of Black people and a lot of people who live in West Louisville. So Jessica Green, you talked about the drug abuse problem that exists in, in Louisville's West End. So there are lots of evidence that demonstrates that much of the gun violence that is now occurring in U.S. cities, uh, Louisville's West End included, has to do with Ill the illegal drug trade. Mm -hmm. The research suggests that criminalization of, of drug addictions as well as the war on drugs has been a dismal failure. The war on drugs began in 1982 during the Reagan administration. That strategy had to do with tracking down drug dealers, breaking up drug cartels, and arresting drug addicts. But since 1980s, drug abuse and chemical dependency has grown exponentially. By 2002, a million people were dying from opioid overdose. By 2014, that number had increased a million five hundred thousand. This information came from designation Hope blog, The Evolution of, of Addiction and Drug Treatment Through the Ages, in September 2016. By 2013, over 207 million prescriptions for opioid painkillers were being written each year, a dramatic increase from 76 million prescriptions in 1991, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. A universal health care system would give everyone suffering from drug addiction access to drug counseling. Police are not trained drug counselors, yet they are called on to arrest drug dealers, as well as those who possess illegal drugs. Should this be a job for police, or would access to drug counselors provided by a universal health care system be a more effective way to diminish the drug problem our country now faces? Yeah, I 100% um, agree with that. Not only access to drug counselors, but access to mental health providers in, in general. And so 
there has been a shift over the last year. You know, people have heard the, the phrase defund the police. And that doesn't mean anybody would be suggesting to just basically disband or to get rid of, of police departments. I don't know many people who are suggesting that. But I do think that resources should be freed up so that the true experts on certain subject matter should be the ones that, that can handle it. And so universal health care, I'm a supporter of, a supporter of that, of course, the, the money and finding the money to, to pay for that is the issue. But I certainly think that drug counselors should be doing the drug counseling. I think that mental health provide, trained mental health providers should be doing the mental health treatment. I think that officers should do what they are trained to do, which is law enforcement to subdue situations, uh, community policing. But the fact that we have uh, utilized officers to have to do all this, which mean, which is why I think that the system is currently failing as is. And so we got to do better because, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over. And what we know is that what we are doing right now, it is for sure not working, not one bit at all. Yeah. Now, Ms. Green, we mentioned earlier that there's uh, about 140 people have already died in Louisville uh, this year as a result of gun violence. Uh, many of those homicides were committed against young African-Americans. That fact must weigh heavily on the minds of police officers as, as they begin their daily shifts. Would uh, diminishing the number of homicides have a, a positive impact on the police force? And would that, would that impact change the way the community views uh, LMPD? I think definitely reducing the number of, of homicides is, is, would be very important. You know, there's this misnomer that, oh, Black people don't like law enforcement. That's, that's not, not true. People of color don't like cricket or racist law enforcement. But because we live in the urban core and there are gunshots flailing around our neighborhoods, we want law enforcement to do their job. We want them to root out and chase out um, the bad guys. And so I definitely do think that decreasing the number of homicides will do a lot to restore trust by the public in the in law enforcement. I think that it will help to somewhat build bridges. And it's something that I think that will will go a, a long way. This has been a very painful year, 2020. Not only the homicides, but the drastic rise in gun violence in and of itself. Every day you turn on the news, someone else has died. All day long, my phone is pinging and dinging about somebody else has been shot or somebody else is, is dead. And when it comes in, particularly when it is a, a young person, I, I, I'm i still not desensitized to it. I still gasp and there's still a pit in the bottom of my stomach where my stomach drops out because, you know, hearing, okay, 140 homicides, that's 140 real people. Those are 140 families that were affected, 140 communities, 140 parents, 140 fathers, this is real out here. And these people are not just numbers. These are real people whose loss is palpable to their families. It's a palpable and real loss to their communities. And so again, we want law enforcement to work and do their jobs and we want them to do it well. And so yes, I, I, yes, I agree with that, with that question, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it also affects brothers and sisters, you know, maybe even more in some, some, some so the whole family, but... Uh, there are red flag laws that have been adopted in, in 19 states, includes, that includes Indiana and New York. Uh, 
in addition to the, the one of the stronger laws, the red flag laws. Most of the laws have been approved uh, since February 2018. On that year, there was a mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Research shows that research and policy was published in, the, in that article, Extreme Risks, Laws Save Lives. That article states, following Connecticut's increased enforcement of its extreme risk law, red flag laws, one study found the law to be associated with about 14% reduction in the state firearm suicide rate. While it is uh, always hard to measure events that didn't happen, an important study in the Connecticut found that one suicide was averted for approximately every 11 gun removals carried out under law. Other states have found similar results. What's your position on red flag laws? What kind of gun safety policy would you support? Yeah, so I I like the idea of those. Of course, you know, obviously the right to, to bear arms is a fundamental right in this country. But the idea that when there are families or communities believe that a, a, a person is a danger to themselves or danger to, to others, um, having the ability to be able to, to petition the court, have that individual surrender their guns, I think is, is a great idea. And so what we know is that a lot of the, particularly the rampages and raids, rages that people have, have gone on, um, particularly when it's kind of a, a mass shooting, these individuals typically have a documented history of documented mental health uh, history. And having any tool in, in a state, city, jurisdiction's uh, arsenal to be able to, to, to be able to curb gun violence is one thing that I 150% support. I'm all about it. And so anything that we, we can do, because we're seeing too many lives lost. And some of these are absolutely completely preventable. And so, you know, for certain population, it hits them in the gut, anything that people would deem to be a restriction on the right to, to bear arms. But, you know, we're talking about saving lives here. And so I think that, again, using all the tools that a state has at its disposal is something that I think that would be a smart move. Do I think that something like that would ever pass in Kentucky? Probably not, <laughs> but it, it at least has the ability to be able to uh, be discussed, to be kicked around. And some more progressive states, we've seen these red flag laws we passed there. You know, in the Reagan years, actually, there was legislation that was almost passed and the NRA was in favor of it. Really? That's OK. Changed, that's changed over the years, as we can see. But it's amazing to me that that was almost approved. And we know that probably... 80 to 90 percent of people in, in the United States want, and even members of the NRA, want some sort of regulation on, on gun and gun control. So it's something that we need to look forward to. I think we, we need to work at those so, in looking for uh, different solutions on, on how to approach not only gun control, but... but uh, I agree. Yeah. So, Jessica Green, let's get back to Louisville here. The city of Louisville has endured over 150 days of demonstrations as a result of the Justice for Brianna protest. What should Mayor Fisher and the Metro Council do to diminish the demonstrations and bring Louisville back to a thriving community? Is negotiations with the leadership of the Brianna Taylor movement part of the answer? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that there should be any active efforts by city government to decrease protests. I mean, I'm, I'm a big First Amendment rights person. Now, as part of that, I don't believe that crimes 
should be committed. I don't think the law should be broken. I don't think that property should be damaged. And when that occurs, that's a separate and a side issue. But I, I would never kind of be a part of any movement that would ask people to stop protesting, to stop demonstrating, because I think that that is part, the beauty of being an American is that you can utilize your voice to protest against the government. I do think that there has to be ongoing conversations with activists, ongoing conversations with the family about where do we go from here? Because I feel like we have been in a very stagnant kind of position over the last 150 days. And so something has got to break because I love the city of Louisville. I've lived in Louisville uh, my entire life outside of being away from for college and, and, and for law school. And the idea, I don't want to believe that all trust has been broken and that we have to stay in this tense moment forever. And so some of the things that we can do to, to move forward are first, publicly without equivocation, admitting that there is a problem, that there have been been problems, and engaging the people at the table, engaging the protesters, not just demonizing them and saying, oh, bad guy, or we don't understand, or all that, all that yelling is not going to get us anywhere. I've told people before, you know, um, 2020 has really been a year of shift and a year of, of change in the sense that uh, for the first time, the, the electorate has really used its collective voice. And so these protests have worked. They've worked to the extent that we have probably been able to pass some of the most progressive ordinances, some of the most progressive policies in the city of Louisville. And so I have encouraged people that if you have an issue, continue to raise your voice because for the first time, I think that, that the elected officials really are actually listening. Uh, Brianna's law would have never gotten passed, but for a concerted effort of people locally and across the country who are raising their voice other pieces of ordinances we've passed this year that have been wonderful and transformative would have never gotten gotten passed. But so I, I encourage it again to move forward, to continue to engage with people on both sides of the aisle, to try to understand where people are coming from, and to try to walk hand in hand and agree where we can agree. And I think that, no, again, no matter what color you are, no matter uh, what party you are from, there are basic human rights that I think all of us can agree, basic issues of equity, basic issues of, of fairness. And so where we can agree, I think we should agree and address those issues. And then only then, after there is true reconciliation attempted, do I think that we have the chance of, of moving forward. But there's a lot of hurt and pain, I think, on both sides of the aisle right now. So- Jessica Green, let's talk about those policies. In a front page article on December 2nd, Louisville Courier Journal entitled, quote, Fisher, racism is a crisis of health, end quote. Mayor Greg Fisher outlined a plan for addressing racial inequities that exist in Louisville, Kentucky. So Greg Fisher proposes a series of steps to address these inequities, quote, one, developing behavior, a health response team as non-enforcement alternative to our support to the police. Second, establishing a plan to ensure every home has broadband Wi-Fi access. Third, closing the black pay gap and increasing black employees in professional, marginal, managerial, and technical positions. 
Third, advocating for a boost to minimum wage, to a living wage, and investing in homeowners and infrastructure improvement in disadvantaged neighborhoods such as Louisville's West End. Is the mayor's plan a step in the right direction? What would you add or what would you change? I 100% think that it is a, a step in the right direction. What I would add in there would be, and I, there, there are efforts that are already being taken because I'm involved in them. It's not actually in, in that, that particular plan, though. Our, our goals related to how to interface and deal with formerly justice-involved individuals and how to move those individuals forward. So whether it's a white guy, a black male, when individuals have been formally involved in, in the justice system. So I'm gonna give you an example. So during this COVID crisis, there were times when the jails were pretty much releasing people from, from, from the jail due to overpopulation and because there were, were outbreaks, which was fine, that, that's okay. But I was having people who were calling me once they were getting released from the jail saying, okay, Councilwoman Green, I just got released from the jail, but I, hey, I don't have an ID. It happened so quickly. I don't really kind of know where my family is because I've been locked up and incarcerated for a while and I was just kind of tossed out onto the street. That is a, a absolute gap in the system. And so if we can't add in some resources, help, assistance, services to formerly incarcerated individuals, then we should expect them for recidivism actually to, to occur. And yeah. so yeah. Uh, I think that that mayor has proposed is fine. I'm agreeable with all of it, but I think that that is a deficiency uh, that needs to be addressed and that I feel very, very, very strongly about if we're gonna really push the pendulum forward here. Okay. You're a strong advocate for the Leadership Global Center uh, Jessica, what is the Leadership Louisville and what is your role with that organization? I love the Leadership uh, Louisville program. I went through um, Bingham Fellows class of 2019, I guess, is when I, I graduated. And so each year, Leadership Louisville puts on uh, some leadership and development training programs throughout the city where they bring together a cross-section of different members in the community. And so they've got shorter programs, they've got longer programs, they do day-long programs with people, they do programs with young people, programs with people well-established, programs with all types of programming. And so it was actually wonderful. And I, I'm still in contact and good friends with some of the people that I went through the, the class with. The class that I, the Bingham Fellows program is, is a year-long program. And we targeted, you target specific issues. And there are different programs that can arise from that. But Leadership Louisville is, is a great think tank and is doing a lot of great work. And I just love them so. They're absolutely awesome over there. And I can't say enough good words about them. There's a proposal to provide paid parental leave for Louisville City employees. What, what does that uh, mean? And, and uh, how much time would that be? And what, what is parental leave? Yeah, so first of all, I'm, I'm extremely sad because one of my dear friends and, and, and colleagues, Councilman Brandon Cohn, actually tonight will be his, his last meeting uh, with Metro Council. So we've got three colleagues that are rolling off tonight, Barbara Sexton-Smith, Brandon Cohn, and David Yates. And so Councilman Cohn is the, the drafter of, of that. I'm not totally, I don't, I don't know totally what exactly in, is in the ordinance. I have not 
read it yet. It hasn't actually been called up for committee, but I am a big proponent of it. Um, most people know that during this pandemic, I was pregnant throughout most of it. I have an 11 week old baby who is at grandma's house, thank God, and not screaming here on this call with us. Uh, uh, Congratulations. I, yeah, thank you very much. So I had the luxury as an elected official to be able to have time off, okay, um, that, you know, officially that w was paid time. City employees, there's nothing that's really built in in, in like that, particularly not, in, not, not an extended period of, of time. I do know that there's language in there also about if you are going to uh, adopt a child. And my understanding is that the the number on that, I think the number was, was something like $2 million, which, it, which sounds like a lot, but in a vast city budget really is peanuts on, on the dollar. And what yeah. we know is that the bonding time between parent and child, those early days is absolutely critical and key to the health and development of the child and uh, to, to the for the parent as well. And so I'm also an adoptive parent as well. And so how wonderful it would have been all those years ago when I adopted my kids for me to have had the ability to have some time off with my kids. At the time I was working as a prosecutor and I wasn't working in Metro Council, but how wonderful it would have been if I could have taken time off. But there I was as a single um, adoptive parent and literally my having an 11 year old who was four days old at the time I got him out of the hospital. And I tell people that, and it's the honest to God truth, I was back at work the next day after I brought him home from the hospital. Thank God I had parents who were able to, to help and to be supportive. But you talk about picking a kid up from a hospital at four days old and then being back at work the next day. When I think about it, it was absolutely nuts and it was crazy. <laughs> Thank God we got through it. But what a, what a resource it would be for city employees to be able to take an extended leave and to know that you're going to be able to be paid while, while you grow your family. So I am interested in uh, learning more about that. It will probably be something that I end up co-sponsoring after I learn more about it. And uh, again, kudos to Councilman Cohn on his way out, who's really just been a great friend and who I really think is a, is a great, uh, just a really good mind. And he's going to be sorely missed because he's really authored some, some outstanding legislation. Well, uh, my wife and I can speak to the parental time off as well. We, uh, when we uh, adopted our son, uh, it made all the difference, I think, in, in getting to know him, him to getting, yep. getting to know us. It, it just, uh, I think, made a, a huge difference. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's also an organization called My Brother's Keeper, My Sister's Keeper. What, how, how are you involved in that? So I'm not, I'm not directly involved with them outside of being a, a su supporter of them. And so I, I do admire the work that they do, which is a lot of work in urban communities, a lot of work in African-American communities, which is to, and there are a lot of great men that I personally know and have personal relationships with who have gone through that program, have been leaders, who've been able to get grant money to support organizations that are doing work right here on the ground here in the city of, of Louisville. And I know that this organization, they typically bring the people who are chosen as kind of the grant recipients. There's, there's, they bring them out kind of for a national kind of meeting and then they deploy back to their own individual communities. And so Louisville has really on the, the really has done a great job of being able to get a lot of people from Louisville who are doing a lot of great work 
linked up with my brother's keeper. And because of that, they've been able to come back to Louisville and support and provide support to organizations and young men right here, boots on the ground right here in Louisville. So wonderful job. Again, a lot of great guys that I know have gone through that program and who are doing great work right here in Louisville every day. Okay, Jessica, Councilwoman Jessica Green, we're running out of time, so I've got one last question here. Okay. So we are deep into the Hanukkah, Christmas, and Kwanzaa se season, which should be a time of joy for most Americans. Yet, mm -hmm. here we are facing the largest pandemic the country has experienced since the Europeans brought European diseases to the natives in the early 1500s. Any words of wisdom to constituents, your constituents, people of Louisville, who would otherwise be looking forward to a joyful holiday season? What do you say to people now? Yeah, I would say, you know, find something to, to be grateful for. These are challenging times. And even though I'm a very blessed person by anybody's standards, I found myself really the isolation of this pandemic being away from friends and family, not being able to go to happy hour, not being able to go to the movies for, for Thanksgiving. It was just my immediate family in my household as opposed for us congregating um, with, with our larger group. And that it's a very different kind of year. And I understand um, the, the isolation can be taxing and it can get to you and do what you can to maintain human contact within your own little bubble, of course. Reach out to a professional if you feel the need and if you feel like that darkness and that the stress is, is becoming overwhelming and find something to be grateful for because, you know, in the midst of it all, if you even have the activity of your limbs, if you have the ability to be able to inhale fresh air, if you have the ability to be able to open up your eyes and to be able to see and to be able to experience another day that's something worth being being thankful for and so at this time of the year when so many of us are used to the festivities and, and are used to the excitement of the holidays things are different but there's still something that we can find to be grateful for good advice so listeners we're out of time our guest today has been louisville councilwoman jessica green our program that features Jessica Green will be repeated Tuesday the 22nd at 8 a.m. and Wednesday the 23rd at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Balance program featuring Louisville Councilwoman Jessica Green will be placed in our archives Wednesday, December 23rd. To listen through our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org, scroll down to the program archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Balance program that features Metro Councilwoman Jessica Green. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you and may even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on broadcast schedule. Please respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting us at Solutions to Balance 18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you once again for listening.